1: Let's bring in Andrew Sheets and Morgan Stanley, the Chief Cross-Asset Strategist. Andrew, let's start with your quote, sir. Quote, investors face early cycle timing, increasingly mid-cycle conditions and late cycle valuations. Andrew, what does that mean?
2: Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Uh, it's nice to be here. So, you know, if you think about where we are just a little over the year, a year from the lows of activity, the lows of markets, you know, usually that would be a, a pretty safely early cycle position. If we think about the last three or four cycles, they've been... You know, seven, eight, nine year events. And so being one year out is still pre, still safely early in that process. But if you think about the conditions that we have, that, that very strong recovery in consumer spending, rising inflation, our economists think you'll see a lot more capex spending uh, start to come through the system. Those are much more mid-cycle dynamics. Um, you, know, you could throw in a, a peak in PMIs to that as well. And then valuations on I mean, many asset classes look more late cycle. They're, they're, they're relatively yeah. expensive. That obviously varies. So this is a pretty complex picture for investors and, and kind of deviates from maybe a year ago or, or six months ago when those early cycle signals were much more
0: consistent. I, I, I got to congratulate Andrew, on having a mid-year review published on May 16th. I just think that's, that's the way they do it at, at Morgan Stanley. Andrew, you've got a grid showing a real bias to international, a bias to European equities as well. Is pricing power an international concept or is that really a concept for the American market? Well, I, I think it, it matters. You know, I think it matters everywhere.
2: I think it will matter more in the U.S. I think it's a you know that quality theme is a more important theme for for Mike Wilson in our, in our U.S. equity call. I think where Europe and some of the international developed markets have an advantage is, you know, I think we know that the next six to twelve months are going to be a real debate between good data, but this question of is that good data too good? Is it going to lead to higher inflation? Is it going to Lead to a central bank uh, policy response. I, I think that is going to drive a lot of the market debate over the next six months. And in Europe and, and to a lesser extent Japan, are just in a very different part of that debate. You know, they are they are not as expensive. Their inflationary pressures are not as significant. I think their central banks will be much slower to respond to any rise in inflationary data. So I think that gives them a big advantage. And you, you, you just mentioned on your program, Secretary Yellen will be talking about tax increases. Again, that's, that's a story that that might impact the U.S. market, but isn't currently on the table in Europe or Japan.
3: And one thing uh, that you're talking about is higher inflation and why that leads to your call to downgrade credit to neutral from overweight. And I'm trying to understand what the bigger risk is to markets based on valuations currently. Higher than expected inflation, or lower than expected growth, right? I mean, these are two concerns and this basically is what people are pitting themselves against when they talk about the Fed and being perhaps counter to their view. Where do you stand on that?
2: Well, I I think for markets broadly, I think weaker growth would be the the bigger risk. I think we saw that, you know, throughout the last and, and I think that was a defining feature of the last cycle, the post GFC period. It was all about risk to the downside. Now, you know, as much as we're all talking about inflation, I think we all need to acknowledge that, you know, growth improving, inflation picking up, and central banks eventually raising rates is a incredibly normal pattern of behavior. That's, That's happened time and time and time again. So that's a very normal thing to happen as things improve. And it doesn't, I think, preempt the idea that we're still in a bull market, things will still be better. Where I think credit starts to get into a challenge though is that if we're talking about a hotter cycle if we're talking about central banks having greater willingness to to run a higher pressure economy as our economists say then you know that's an environment where credit investors they don't benefit if if growth is better but they are still exposed if that kind of hotter growth means that the next downturn is is closer than it would otherwise be
1: Andrew Sheets got to leave it there on that important note in the credit market Morgan Stanley chief cross asset <coughs> strategist
0: Now, on foreign exchange, we have anticipated this because he has been more brilliant than anyone I know on saying weak dollar, weak dollar. When's it going to happen? We're not sure. Mark McCormick is with TD Securities. Mark, the dollar finally breaks down. Is it enough of a break for you to switch to a bit of a weak dollar?
4: Well, yeah, I think we still like the medium-term dollar down story. I think there's an interesting element where the global economy is doing pretty good. It's catching up with the United States. We do see absolute growth levels that are favoring the U.S., but the delta of growth, which matters for currencies, is moving in a weaker dollar direction. The most important factor is really, again, the Fed is allowing the weakness in the dollar, essentially because what they're trying to do is run the economy hot, let inflation run higher, and they're experimenting with uh, what feels like an MMT type narrative. So you add those things together and the dollar's still overvalued and we're still seeing again, the global story is, is moving the right direction. So those are ingredients for a medium term dollar move lower. But I think the more interesting action is really on the kind of the month to month, the three month, the quarterly basis, which is really giving us really interesting pivot points to make tactical decisions whether or not you want to overweight or underweight currencies against the dollar in that uh, timeline.
1: So, Mark, we're trying to resolve a tug of war, the tension, as you've pointed out, between global reflation, a global synchronized recovery and U.S. exceptionalism. Between that tug of war right now, Mark, what do you think wins out?
4: Yeah, I think right now we kind of have to downgrade global inflation a little bit. It's not really about US exceptionalism, but I think what we had is obviously weak NFP print and really strong inflation numbers. I think what we've learned from a lot of conversations with clients is people are completely mixed. It's one or the other, it's binary. Either the Fed is making a huge mistake and they're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to really work to make things better. Or they fall on our side, which is basically they're not going to taper anytime soon and they're not going to hike rates until about 2024. Uh, But there's definitely a debate that is very lively that the Fed could taper or start talking about tapering in June, July or even at Jackson Hole in August. So that's live. And I think in that environment, what we're seeing is inflation is starting to move a little bit lower based on the mobility that we track on a daily basis. Volatility should be higher. Inflation break even should be a little bit lower and real rates should be a little bit higher. So in that backdrop, that's a little bit more positive for the dollar, um, at least on a tactical basis versus kind of the medium term outlook we just okay. outlined.
1: But- so, Mark, let's push this through euro dollar right now. High of the year on euro dollar 123.49, intraday high back on January 6th. Where are you looking to push this through and when? 123? Right now, 122.23. What are you looking for on euro dollar?
4: I think these are good fade levels. So if you are to take our... Right our kind of, Yeah, I think, yeah, if you were to take our year ahead forecast, we're in a 122 to 118 camp. So even at the end of the year, I think we're going to see a little bit more of a stronger dollar versus the euro. Again, I think most of the action FX is really going to come down to factors that aren't really related or a big driver of the euro, which is really commodity exposure, value, relative economic growth and even the equity story. I think the upside for the euro that people aren't expecting isn't going to be a central bank trade, it's going to be an equity story. So if European equity start to outperform like they have been or at least on the daily tracking of ETF flows, that's where I think p- people could be surprised by the euro, but based on the growth, the carry, the value and the relative central bank policy, to me, euro still a sell at 122, and you buy it back around 118, 117. So
3: what could be the trigger for what you're saying, for, for, for the money flooding into European equities
4: and driving euro higher? What data points are you looking at? I, I think it comes down to the growth in the vaccine catch-up story. That is a big narrative now that I think is, is important. But I think the problem is, is there isn't enough on the other side to say there's a bunch of factors we wanna buy the Euro on, but the vaccine story and the growth delta are important, uh, but we don't see the valuation story there, we don't see the carry argument, we don't see the yield curve steepness. Um, So there's a couple elements there, and obviously commodities is not a big driver of the Euro, and that's why you kinda wanna look elsewhere in Europe. Again, like the Norwegian Kron, you've got a hawkish central bank, you've got commodity, you've got global connections. So I think with the Euro, what you would kind of need to see it is, it's already there in the price, Uh, Most of our models say the euro is a little bit overdone, and that's why I'm a little wary of chasing it, because you don't have a value story along with a very stellar growth story. You have a pickup story, which is is interesting, but it's really well known by the market. So, again, I think for the equity story to work out is we really need to see what happens with the German elections later this year. If we do get a pivot to a green led movement, kind of center left, I think MMT narrative is much better for Europe because it brings capital back into Europe no more recycling of the current account surplus, and that would be beneficial for the, euro, uh, for the euro, versus the MMT narrative is not as great for the U.S. because you're taxing You know where the the marginal driver of innovation comes in the US, which is the equity market, which is what the dollar needs this cycle.
3: Okay, just to parse through some of this and dig into a lot of what you're saying, this is going back to the question of, is fiscal spending good or bad for a currency? And you're saying that fiscal spending in Europe could be good, whereas fiscal spending in the US could be bad for the dollar with respect to its strength because of the taxation that's likely to accompany it. Am I getting that correctly?
4: Absolutely. I I think it's very critical. One of the things that is most heavily missed, and I'd say even especially the last five years, the relative equity story is absolutely critical. If you think about why the dollar was able to rally during the Trump years, a lot of it had to do is U.S. equities outperformed the rest of the world and the U.S. yield curve was steepening while the rest of the, yield, rest of the world yield curve was flattening. For the dollar to really kind of make up what is, I think, a weak dollar policy from the Fed, it is going to need equity flows. Uh, so in a broad balance of payments context, you're going to have a twin deficit, which does need an offset. The twin deficit during the Trump years was offset by equity inflows and the growth story. So I think a big side of it here is if the Euro, if European policymakers deliver more positive growth shocks, especially, again, with the German elections, maybe leading to more fiscal stimulus, that's an important development because that gives people a reason to bring capital flows back into Europe where they've been recycling them out of Europe for the past 10 years. So that's where I do think it's critical. And if uh, the U.S. were to tax equity markets and tax the wealth and innovation that comes from the equity markets, that's a, that's a negative for the dollar in the context of where the Fed's going in the global economy is. That's why, again, we like it lower over the medium term.
1: Mark, always smart. Good to see you. Mark McCormick there of TD Securities, the global head <laughs> of FX strategy.
0: We're thrilled to bring you truly the great synergy here yep. synergy i say it actually uh, works Craig Moffat and Michael Nathanson as we look at so much of the distribution and content creation of our media business gentlemen thank you so much for being with us uh, this morning uh, michael nathanson very simple here and craig dive in on this as well geetha here is adamant that the Roberts family in Philadelphia must respond. What would you suggest Comcast will do after we see Amazon MGM after we see Warner Discovery?
5: Michael? Well, well Tom, you're going to like this. I'm going to refer to Craig today because <laughs> you always say I take his questions. So, let me go <clears> to <throat> Craig first. Is that okay? Because I don't want to be, Sure, be, be Craig? for stepping on his line. I,
6: yeah thanks for having us back Tom um, I, you know look my guess is that while everybody wants Comcast to do something right away uh, and and they are clearly subscale in the streaming wars with peacock today um, I, I don't really think there's anything for them to do right now I, I, I think they missed an opportunity with with Warner media the, the fit with WarnerMedia Warner media would have been frankly probably Better than uh, than between Warner Media and Discovery, and um, and and better than anything else. Why can't they
0: top tick the that even with a seven hundred million dollar breakup fee?
6: Because because there really are antitrust concerns, number one, um, uh, and and also um, the the challenge is, you know, there there are some overlap issues like CNN and MSNBC that that clearly couldn't be together. Um, and then you have this problem of they probably don't want the cable networks, um, TNT and TBS. So you start to sort of piece part the thing into the pieces what, that you that you really want, especially HBO Max. And, and frankly, I don't think that's going to appeal to the AT&T board and AT&T. So my guess is they probably let this pitch go by with some frustration of having missed it um, and that they sort of bide their time because as much as everybody would like to say, the last dance partners have been chosen and the game is almost over. The reality is Peacock's not even relevant yet. And if they can build Peacock into at least a relevant service, and they've got the Olympics to help them do that, down the road it may be that the right dance partner um, is actually Amazon um, and that Amazon uh, Prime, if whether they do MGM or not, will... Um, could end up being a, a potential suitor for a Comcast media business or or somebody else. Um, I, I don't think this burning urgency to say we've got to do something today or tomorrow is actually right. All right, Michael. Please,
5: uh, it, it, oh, okay, it,
6: Michael, it kind of feels like here we're getting into those really last innings where people are really trying to make sure they're not the last one standing. So Amazon, MGM, that goes to one of the kind of the subscale – Content players out there in MGM and make a lot of sense for Amazon or, or for some others, but how about Viacom CBS as well? Um, what do they do? Because um, it, boy, it just begs a question that even a merged Viacom CBS, uh, it doesn't have quite the scale.
5: No, it doesn't, Paul. They they can't do very much, right? What's left are you know pawns on the chessboard, right? You can go after Lionsgate, you can go after an AMC Networks. They're not big. They're not scaled internationally. You know, this was, so Craig's right, Comcast can take their time, but this was the last big global play to be had, right? And after this, they're mostly domestic stories. So I think C B S has really stuck, and I think for the time being, you know, Comcast will sit on their hands, as Craig said, but there's really not a lot you can do with, what, with the pieces on the board. There just isn't there's- enough scale out there.
0: Do you, with all the work you guys have done, if you're just joining us worldwide, Craig Moffat, Michael Nathanson, with us, Moffat, uh, Nathanson, and this historic week for media, to the two of you, and I go to Michael Mobison's classic essay at Credit Suisse, a good 12, 13 years ago, that there's only one or two in each category. Do we need a number three streaming person or number four <laughs> streaming person, or can it be just Netflix and Disney win? Well, Tom, you
5: know, we've talked about this for, for a while. I don't even know if streaming is a great business, right? Like, we haven't seen the proof points that streaming is a great business. It requires tons of capital, constant refresh, as you know. It's not Google. It's not Microsoft. It's not Apple. Um, yeah, this may be a category when it's all said and done that, you know, you know, the winners get, get majority. But the majority is not enough to make this – a category of high ROIC, right? And we, we don't know how it ends up, but I think Craig and I both feel that what yeah. where we're coming from in media, is going to be a worse ROI, ROIC trade. That's what we're moving towards. So, Fascinating.
0: And, you know, Paul, Sweeney, what's so important here, and Axios had a great bar chart, I'm sure they stole from Craig Moffat and Michael Nathanson, <laughs> but it's amazing, Netflix is essentially one-tenth the market cap of Apple. Oh I mean, yeah! We forget yeah. the scaling here. Well, well
6: that kind of brings yeah. me to my question for, for for both of you: is is we see the news today of Apple taking a look at MGM? Okay, nine billion dollars. But why is Amazon not looking at Viacom CBS? Why are they not looking at a much much bigger
5: asset out there? Because Netflix, uh, and I hate when I do this because you're going to say Craig needs more time. So Craig, <laughs> I was going to say you know you know because Netflix has proven. You don't need to own traditional assets to build a global company, right? right. You don't need to buy other people's problems to scale this business.
0: Oh, I got to have one more question, and it's got to go to Craig Moffat because he's been silent while Nathanson blathers on. Craig, <laughs> you, you you have been. Sh- I went back and looked at Mr. Stevenson the day of the direct oh TV speech. I mean. What does AT&T actually do? What do they say to their employees? What do they say to the board? What's what's the 90-day prescription for AT&T after this mother of all uh, failures?
6: You know, I, I may surprise you with this because I've been, um, as you say, very critical of, yes. of this strategy, and um, I actually give some credit to John Stanky, yep. um, for for being able to acknowledge that this was a mistake. You know, you rarely see businesses, particularly this quickly, this is only a couple of years after they bought it, um, you rarely see businesses where the management team that put a deal together is willing to acknowledge that it was a mistake and unwind it. Now, they, to be fair, they didn't have a choice. They were trying to fight three wars, and they didn't have the money to
7: right. fight all
6: three But, but what They're did they do,
0: just because of time, how do they compete with a juggernaut known as T-Mobile?
6: I, look, it's a real problem. Um, there's what this deal was the right thing for the company to do, but it doesn't make AT&T an attractive asset because it doesn't fix the problem. The problem was that or, or what the problem they're left with is that by virtue of having spent all the money on media and and burdened their balance sheet, yeah. they've underspent in the wireless business. And now I don't see any future where they aren't a third place out of three wireless well. network. And so they've still got a ton of wood to
0: jump. you guys have been wonderful the last couple of days i do want to mention folks we've had uh, tons of inquiries we protect the copyright of all of our guests including craig Moffat. we don't protect the copyright of michael nathanson because he's a content <laughs> guy but gentlemen thank you thank you so much Right now, an exceptionally important conversation with one of the candidates for that June 22nd primary in uh, New York City. Eric Adams joins us with just an absolutely remarkable biography. Eric, you're lining up the endorsements. You are on a dash to June 22nd. What is the endorsement? What is the support you most covet right now?
7: Are uh, uh, really uh, everyday people. I like to say those blue collar workers, uh, not only those employees, employees who are doing uh, the construction and other jobs, but even uh, my accountants, my doctors. Uh, it's a symbol of blue collarism. I like to say, uh, hardworking people in the city of New York, and they really have endorsed my campaign because they know I protected the city for 22 years. Um, and public safety is the prerequisite to prosperity, and that's the symbol I'm going to bring.
0: And it's the way you got to that 22-year career. We're not going to go into it right now because of time, but you had a most original path to serving with the NYPD. Tell us right now how the NYPD can change with Mayor
7: Adams. It's about rebuilding trust. Uh, I, state, I will state this over and over again, and many of my colleagues that are running for office don't want to talk about this. We have to rebuild the trust, change the ecosystem of public safety, define the role of police, but most importantly, we need each other. Let me tell you something, the streets of our country in general, but specifically in New York, uh, those streets are going to be controlled by the good guys or the bad guys. And I'll be done if I'm going to let the bad guys take us back to the days when we were having 2,000 homicides a year. I'm going to rebuild trust with law enforcement and communities in this city.
3: Eric, this is an incredibly important message at a time when shootings were up 166% year over year in April in New York City. When people are wondering, how do you accomplish what you're looking for, which is safer streets and preventing some of these shootings and other violent crimes from getting out of control? What's your recommendation as a 22-year veteran of the New York Police Department, do you recommend putting plainclothes police officers in subways? What measures specifically are needed?
7: Well, there are a number of things we we must look at and dealing with this crime problem is both uh, prevention and intervention. Prevention, uh, that uh, consists of the long-term things we must do. But intervention is right now. Uh, We have 3 year olds shot uh, at Times Square uh, we had a number of homicides and shootings in the last few uh, days so it's about reinstituting a anti-gun unit that is better trained will have officers that are using their cameras properly and we'll do what's called precision policing we must go after the gangs and the over proliferation of guns in our city if we don't we are not going to have an economic recovery we won't have the tourism the business travelers or get our offices back up and operating.
3: Eric, this is what a lot of people are saying, that if you don't have safe streets, you can't get businesses that already are thinking of leaving to stay in this city. What other measures are you going to take to keep them here, especially given the fact that the bills for all of these services and all of these measures are racking up and there's a deficit that we need to address as well?
7: Yes, and there's also a great opportunity. Uh, Number one, uh, thanks to our Senate and congressional delegation, we're going to have over uh, $10 billion in stimulus coming to our city. But the real question is, are we going to squander this opportunity? We have to end the inequalities that we see in this city. And it's it's really because all of our cities in America are just really dysfunctional. Cities are made up of agencies. If those agencies are not Mm -hmm. aligned, you're not going to get the results that you're looking for. So we must attract new businesses here, become the center of cybersecurity, of technology, of self-driving cars, we are too expensive, yeah. too bureaucratic, and too difficult to do business in the city. And I'm going to turn that around.
0: Eric Adams, I am really upset about your endorsement from Doc Gooden. I don't know how I can do that. <laughs> I need you to get an endorsement from Ellis Burks of the Boston Red Sox. Let's get on that uh, today. How are you going to bring together New York? Everybody's polarized. Oh, there's like well, I think there's 400 candidates, Lisa. But but Mayor Adams, how are you going to bring New York together? The fam- Fancy people, the less fancy people. How do
7: you do that day one? Well, first of all, we got, we're going to send out the right message. Listen, 65,000 New Yorkers are paying 51% of our income taxes. They are they are only two percent of our income tax filers. I don't join the chorus that states. Uh, so what do they leave, no, we need them here. Uh, we're How are you going to gonna start- keep
0: them here? How are you, what's your policy going to be to keep the upper 1% happy in New York City so they don't move down to watch the Florida
7: Marlins? Well, one thing's for sure. Let me tell you, I hear from them all the time. Eric, we don't feel safe. Yeah. Eric, we don't believe we can walk our streets and our community. We can't use our transit system in a safe way. All New Yorkers, no matter if you are a cab driver or person that's in the back of a limousine you want a safe city and that is something i know far too well of what an unsafe city can do to the economic economic Environment and the stability of the city. And I'm going to make this city a safe place to raise healthy children and families. Eric,
3: uh, just before we let you go, this is a delicate issue. The New York Times had a story uh, that I want to give you a chance to address where they were talking about some contributions that you've taken from businesses uh, that the city has influence on and you have influence on as borough president. You've called money uh, the enemy of politics before. Do you have a response to the story?
7: Uh, yes, and it's not a delicate issue uh, for me. No delic- no issue is delicate for me because I am extremely transparent. I'm one of the few elected officials in the country uh, that uh, has a procurement, or I should say a compliance officer that's on board with me. This story has been vetted so many times. I was surprised to see the New York Times place this on their first page above the fold uh, to give the appearance uh, that any... In improprieties took place. This has been vetted. Uh, We are in clear compliance with all the rules. And I was really disappointed by the headline that gave the uh, appearance of any any wrongdoings. We have not received any type of infractions uh, based on how we handle our procedures at Borough Hall. I am not impacted by money and politics. I'm impacted by what's needed for everyday New Yorkers and Brooklynites. And I have Uh, done that for over 35 years.
0: Eric Adams, thank you so much. He's a mayoral candidate, the June 22nd uh, primary uh, vote here in New York City. Right now, well, it is an essay that gets your attention. Let's get right to it. He has been our most direct and assertive guest here on The Pandemic. I'm Esha Dalger, writing in The Hill. And I'll tell you, folks, it's real straightforward, and it gives pause uh, as, uh, wh- as, as well. Let me bring that up uh, right now. I have characterized testing as the original sin of COVID pandemic. There are very few reasons to test asymptomatic individuals, beyond facilitating the COVID exposed unvaccinated ending quarantine early or the unvaccinated international travel. Fully vaccinated persons, as the CDC guidance states, should not be tested unless symptomatic. Dr. Adalja joins us uh, right now. What's the next step, Dr. Adalja? That's quite a statement here. So then what is the best policy for America?
8: The best policy is to really focus on testing symptomatic individuals and people who are exposed and unvaccinated who need to end quarantine early. Because right now we're in a position where we are getting false positives because the prevalence of infection is falling. And we're in a place in this pandemic that we haven't been. Over 70% of people above the age of 65 have been fully vaccinated. Those were the people that gave us this public health emergency. Those are the ones that were getting hospitalized. We've increasingly removed the ability of this virus to threaten our hospitals. So now we've kind of gotten to a point where this is like other respiratory viruses and we have to start thinking about it like other respiratory viruses we don't test people asymptomatically for influenza so I think we probably need to start ratcheting back a lot on this asymptomatic testing and focus on vaccinating people and testing people who are symptomatic uh, with either if they're vaccinated or not vaccinated because I think we're in a, we're in a good mm-hmm. point in a good trajectory I think we,
0: Speak to schools right now. It's May. We got to get to August and ramp up to September school start. Are you saying COVID and influenza, that there's little distinction, that there's little difference?
8: When it comes to younger children, what what we find is that COVID-19 and influenza probably are about comparable risks. They are both... They're, they both they, they both have the same burden of illness in, in children actually arguably you could say influenza has a higher burden in children so what schools do for influenza that should be what they're doing for covid 19 and I think it's even it's even more the case because the vaccine for covid 19 which is for which students 12 years and up are eligible for is much more effective than the flu the flu vaccine so I think we're in an okay place when it comes to schooling I don't think that pool testing or asymptomatic testing is something that we should do in schools because you're going to get a lot of false positives you're going to have a lot of disruption. I think that we can continue the other mitigation measures of masks, trying to vaccinate the population, social distancing, but schools should be open now, and I don't think testing should be a barrier uh, for, for opening te- for opening schools.
3: Dr. Delta, can you square the discrepancy between what you're saying, which is essentially we're moving into a new phase of the pandemic where it's no longer the pandemic, but it's just another illness that we need to deal with on a regular basis, whereas we have Singapore locking down after a handful of cases that have been uh, detected in the community. What is the- the potential approach that you see as the correct one internationally, especially as we see the cases surge in places like India?
8: So I I think if you've got a highly vaccinated population, you have a whole different menu of options that that are there. If you're a country that's not highly vaccinated like India, then your only options are those same what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions, where you have social distancing and you have advising people to stay at home. All of that is something that you don't have to do if your population is highly protected with the vaccine, especially those high-risk individuals. So I don't think what Singapore is doing is correct. I think right now the U.S. is on the right policy for the first time probably during the pandemic, the U.S. actually has the correct policy where we've decoupled cases from severe, se- severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths, which is exactly what the vaccine was designed to do. So I think that that's the policy now is to vaccinate your population as much as possible. And the only reason that you should be pushing these non-pharmaceutical interventions is if you have not vaccinated enough of your high-risk populations and you're worried about your hospitals going into crisis. We've removed that ability in the United States by vaccinating those high-risk individuals.
3: Dr. Adalja, we also though are looking at strains and other variants and people sometimes point to that to say, look, we need to still remain vigilant and still remain uh, cautious with respect to tracking the virus and making sure that you take social distancing precautions. And uh, do you think that's mongering? Do you think that that's sort of unnecessary, given the fact that a lot of the uh, the vaccines have shown to be prove effective against some of these strains?
8: Definitely. When when you have a fully vaccinated population, a high percentage of your population fully vaccinated, those variants, even the more problematic variants like one three five one from South Africa, they are still unable to cause serious disease, hospitalization, and death. Certainly, if you're an unvaccinated person, those variants do pose a risk to you. And if you're an unvaccinated country, it can be a real problem, as we've seen in places mm-hmm. like India. But I think that the variants are something that our vaccines are very robust against. So the solution to the variants is to get vaccinated and to vaccinate as much of your of your population as possible.
1: Dr. Adalja, always good to hear from you, sir. As always, come back soon. Dr. Emish Adalja there at Johns Hopkins Center for mm-hmm. Health Security Senior Scholar.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening.